This is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is mid-afternoon in, on June the 22nd, 2022 in San Francisco. Uh, on the west coast of the United States, on the edge of Silicon Valley. Lots of news in tech today. A couple of interesting pieces I found. One is that um, on Recode that uh, there's a leaked Amazon memo. I think most Amazon memos are leaked by disgruntled workers. And this one is probably not surprising given how disgruntled the workers are. Warning that the company is running out of people to hire. Amazon seems to employ everyone in America to pick to pack up its uh, its products to send to us. Either we're buying on Amazon or we're working for Amazon. Um, and at the same time, and there's perhaps a connection between this yesterday, uh, Amazon announced its first fully autonomous mobile warehouse robot. In other words, once they get this warehouse, they won't need to hire anyone because the robots will be working for Amazon and they'll be supplying us with all our packages. Meanwhile, um, lots of other interesting things going on on the labor front in terms of big tech. Um, Joe Biden was thrilled that the Amazon workers, uh, sorry, the Apple workers at a Maryland store voted to unionize. Here we have an image of them uh, celebrating. Uh, Biden was very happy. It reflected the victory of traditional labor. And we're going to be talking about labor in the Internet today. My guest on the show is Ben Tarnoff. He has a brand new book out. He's actually, he's normally based in Boston, but he happens to be in San Francisco uh, to launch his book. There was an event last night at City Lights in San Francisco, the iconic bookstore. Uh, the book is called Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future. And as I said, Ben is joining us from San Francisco. Ben, is what happened in Maryland the kind of internet for the people that you're trying to encourage in your book? Well, certainly. I mean, I think labor organization of all of the different workers that are required to sustain the tech giants is absolutely critical. And I think, you know, what uh, what we're seeing companies like Apple and Amazon is that there is an immense amount of labor, not just the kind of relatively well-paid software engineers, but warehouse workers, you know, retail store employees, you name it, that make up the fortunes of these companies. But that's why these companies are so profitable. So certainly part of my vision for how to democratize the internet involves organizing workplaces, ensuring that workers have an opportunity to participate in decisions that affect them. Ben, we're having a problem with audio. I don't know why. I think we're going to have to start this again. Do, do you sound to sure. yourself very crackly? Uh, I, I don't to myself, but uh, I can move things around for you. Your um, audio is breaking you. up. So I think we're going to have to end this, and I'm going to need to send you another link. I apologize for this, okay. but the audio no just problem. doesn't work. Okay, no so why don't we leave here, and I'll send you another link. Okay? We'll do. Yep. Apologize.
Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 22nd, 2022. I'm, as always, in San Francisco on the edge of Silicon Valley. Lots of interesting news on the tech front uh, over the last couple of days. Um, there's a, a leaked Amazon memo suggesting that the company is running out of people to hire either. It seems we're working for Amazon or we are customers of Amazon. And a, a connected piece of news is that Amazon just announced yesterday its first fully autonomous mobile warehouse robot, which means that perhaps all the Amazon workers will be replaced. That wouldn't, of course, be a good thing. Um, when it comes to labor, lots of other interesting news. The Apple workers in, Mer in a Maryland store voted to unionize, a first in the United States. Here we have an image of these Amazon workers celebrating. Joe Biden was thrilled. He put out a message saying that he, he was proud of these workers uh, committing themselves to union organization. Uh, and the future of the Internet may very well be bound up with the future of organized labor and their relations with the the giants of Silicon Valley. I think that's certainly the, the message of my guest today. Ben Tarnoff is the author of a brand new book, Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future. Ben is normally based in Boston. He's actually out in San Francisco um, this week to launch the book at City Lights. Uh, ben, I assume that you're very encouraged by the news out of Maryland, are you? I am, absolutely. You know, Andrew, building a democratic internet is inseparable from the task of building a democratic society more broadly. And there's no path to a democratic society without worker organization everywhere, in every workplace. So it's particularly encouraging, of course, to see worker organization developing within the tech sector, you know, within very profitable, very large, very powerful companies like Apple and Amazon. But we're also seeing an uptick of labor militancy elsewhere. Starbucks workers are organizing across the country. So there are some encouraging signs and, and we hope the momentum continues. It's interesting, Ben, there seem to be two kinds of tech writers in terms of trying to make the internet a better place. There are those um, who believe that new technology will create new opportunities. People like Jamie Suskind, he has a new book out, The Digital Republic. I'm going to actually be interviewing him next week. Um, and then there are perhaps more traditional progressives like you who believe that we need to go back to the organizing principles, the principles of social and political justice of the past. Am I doing you an injustice to put you in that second camp? Do you see technology as, be, as, as also being used in an innovative way to create a, a fairer, a better, a more just internet? Well, I, I do think technical considerations are important. You know, I think the technologies we build often have a politics embedded in them. And we do, frankly, need a lot more technological experimentation and creativity to build a better internet. So technologists have a role to play. But I would say that technical considerations are secondary to political ones, that this is primarily a political problem. This is primarily a problem that we can solve with political power. There is a technical element, but it is, let's say, subordinate to the political element. 
Ben, what's gone wrong with the internet? I mean, that's a question that many of us have been grappling with over the last 25 years. When one reads of a company like Apple, that I've always considered one of the better companies of Silicon Valley, if they're against unionization, why would companies like Apple, which are enormously profitable, or Amazon for that matter, of course, who have been aggressively against unionization, why would they be so opposed, particularly since they seem to be governed by people like Tim Cook or, or Jeff Bezos, who, if anything, are on the on the progressive side of American politics. Uh, Bezos uh, is the owner of the Washington Post. Uh, Cook is an active uh, supporter of many progressive causes. Are these people different in the office? Do they become darker, more satanic figures when they go into their, mm-hmm. their offices in Silicon Valley? Well, look, I, I, one way to think about this is they inhabit particular relations of production. You know, these are people who are at the top of very large, very powerful, very wealthy capitalist enterprises. And it's true that in, in some cases, certain of these individuals, particularly from Silicon Valley, have tended to be associated with the Democratic Party, um, have been associated with a certain kind of liberal politics, although with some caveats and, and exceptions. Um, but there are certain imperatives that let's say, govern and constrain their behavior as the managers of large capitalist enterprises. And one of those, of course, is to uh, try to maximize profitability and critically, even more importantly, retain total sovereignty over the operations of the firm. You know, you point out a company like Apple, it's a very wealthy company. It's a very profitable company. It could certainly afford to pay its retail workers more. Uh, But then why does it resist unionization? Well, I think it's not simply about the money, it's also about their reluctance to let workers have a seat at the table and a voice on the job, that there is a real reluctance to give workers a degree of power over the conditions of their work. Are there Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who for you are are models of of being willing to give workers a seat at the table. One person who comes to mind is Mark Benioff, a very active and generous donor to liberal causes. And yet uh, we did a show a couple of months ago on Davos Man, on these multi-billionaires ruling the world. Uh, Peter Goodman, a New York Times writer, wrote a very aggressive polemic against Davos Man. And exhibit number one in this book was Mark Benioff himself. Uh, I don't want to turn this into just another conversation about bashing the Benioffs and the Bezoses and the Tim Cooks. But are there any examples of positive figures? Maybe Jack Dorsey, for example, who used to run Twitter. Or are they all somehow in the same boat, the same reactionary political boat when it comes to reforming the Internet itself? Well, I would say, you know, the the politics of these figures can be somewhat distinct. Uh, Benioff has supported certain um, causes in local San Francisco politics that I also support. I think I would shift the question a bit to talk about what is your theory of change? And I think at the end of the day, for me, my theory of change in terms of how I think we're going to get not just a better Internet, but a better society is by having large numbers of people come together and take disruptive action in their workplaces and in their communities. In other words, I I have a movement-based theory 
of change, of how change happens. Now, it matters who is at the head of these capitalist enterprises. It matters who is, you know, in political office. But in terms of where the point of emphasis should lay, in terms of where the real engine of transformation should lay, I, I do think it exists at a movement level. So that's typically where my attention is focused. You wrote an interesting piece in Commune in, I think it was in 2020, uh, entitled, These are the conditions in which revolutions become thinkable. This was at the beginning of the pandemic, probably in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement. Have you been disappointed that the conditions that you thought, or and again, maybe I'm putting words into your mouth, that you thought revolution could become thinkable? In many ways, in June 22, we're back, June 2022, we're back to business as normal, maybe some labor organizations, but no real structural shifts. And of course, we seem to be now on the brink of a recession a major change in, in the economic circumstances in the country, which is generally not very good for revolutionary movements. Yeah, you know, I wrote that piece, you know, towards the beginning of the pandemic. So it was actually before the George Floyd uprising of the summer of 2020. And the point that I was trying to make there is that the, the, the scale of the loss of life that we were looking at, and which sadly was later confirmed, I and mean, we've lost more than a million people in the United States to COVID. So this kind of unimaginable trauma were essentially wartime conditions, that that's kind of the closest analogy we had for that, that scale of a loss of life. And that we had to think about the level of desperation, not only produced by the loss of life, but of course, you know, at the time, the, the accompanying economic fallout um, as possibly producing a political opening in which more radical kinds of action would be thinkable. And I think we did see that confirmed to some extent by the George Floyd uprising. As you indicate, Andrew, though, there was, I think, very swiftly uh, a closing down that that window slammed shut. And we're at a period now where it's difficult to find, frankly, any traces of the George Floyd uprising. If anything, we're in the backlash phase. So. I think there is a degree of disappointment inevitably. I think you know we can also find glimmers of hope like organizing Apple workers, organizing Amazon workers, Starbucks workers, and so on. But it is uh, an uncertain moment and, and one in which I don't feel particularly optimistic, but not particularly pessimistic either, I'd say. You wrote an interesting piece, you co-wrote it in January 2021 about Silicon workers, Silicon Valley workers having had enough. Um, this was, there were a lot of disturbances back then. There still are a lot of unhappy Google workers, for example, in management of the company. Um, a lot of unhappy Silicon Valley workers when it comes to diversity. There's still the dominance of white men. Are, are you still... Um, and I, and I use this word carefully, are you still optimistic that Silicon Valley workers have had enough? Because I assume you think that's actually a good thing. Well, I think what we've seen with tech worker organization in particular is a bit of a shift away from the bigger firms like Google towards smaller firms, You know, many of which people would not have necessarily heard of, um, in which workers are organizing and winning unions. So there have been a number of wins over the past few years. There are now more than a dozen 
uh, unions of white collar tech workers like software engineers and product designers at different stages of development. You know, in some cases, they're still organizing them. In some cases, they're negotiating contracts. So there has been, I think, a bit of an evolution, but a lot of the organizing momentum now, at least with the kind of white collar tech worker professionals, is in the smaller shops. I think it would be fair, I don't think you would debate, uh, you would deny, Ben, that you're on the left, you're on the traditional left, maybe you're a socialist, maybe you're not, you're certainly more of a socialist than most people. Do you think the the biggest problem is this libertarian ethic in Silicon Valley? I did a, an interview, um, and I've done many of these, with an entrepreneur, Joshua Browder, the CEO of uh, Do Not Pay, it's a, a platform that enables people to avoid paying parking tickets. A lot of people are very unhappy with this libertarian ideology. Three Stanford professors, for example, wrote a book called System Era, where big tech went wrong and how we can reboot a book sort of designed to make tech people, I wouldn't say more educated, but more accountable and responsible. Is from the left is the biggest ideological problem, libertarianism, which tends to attract young white men in particular who are rebellious, but that rebelliousness is channeled into something which isn't particularly productive, I'm guessing, you would think at least. Well, I would say that the politics of the tech industry are a bit more complex in that it's absolutely true that there is a, let's say, liberal libertarian faction. You know, the Californian ideology is often a term that's used to describe that political orientation. And one finds this throughout the industry, but it's particularly well represented in the upper layers of the industry, in the executive and investor class. And I think outside of the industry, our view of the politics of tech are often disproportionately shaped by those figures because they have the biggest platforms, you know, the executives and the investors and, and are uh, in a position to speak most freely. When one descends into the rank and file of these tech companies, one finds a more various political picture. There obviously are people who subscribe to the kind of liberal libertarianism of the California ideology, but there are a number of people who are on the left, you know, who are attracted to a social democratic or a socialist politics. There was enormous enthusiasm for Bernie Sanders uh, presidential campaigns among tech workers. There is also, we have to say, a constituency for far right politics within rank and file tech sector. So I think the political uh, complexion, let's say, of Silicon Valley is, is a little bit more various uh, than we're often led to believe. What about the issue of information, Ben? One of the great promises of the internet was democratizing information. Everybody would have the same access. Everyone would be able to author news. Fake news, of course, has come to dominate the power of Facebook in particular. One of another piece of news today is that a new digital news video platform has been born, Semaphore, raising $25 million from wealthy, relatively progressive individuals. Do you have any faith in these new platforms to tell the truth? Or have we, have we, have we believed in these things too many times in the past and they've never actually been realized? Well, I think it brings us back to an earlier question of yours, Andrew, which is the relationship between the technical and the political. And I think there's frankly been too much faith 
that certain technical interventions are going to automatically solve what are basically political problems. So when we think about you know, how to organize information on the internet, there are obviously a lot of technical components to that. There are the filtering algorithms that determine what shows up in your Facebook feed. Um, there are you know, rules about content moderation and so on. So there's a lot of, lot of technical elements here, but ultimately these are subordinated to these broader political forces. You know, uh, much of what we talk about when we talk about so-called disinformation is actually a kind of broader and much more complicated set of forces about how people acquire their ideological frames. It's not enough to say that someone saw a piece of, you know, Russian planted propaganda on the internet and turn to the far right. That's that's a kind of mechanical and simplistic view of how people become politicized. So I think we need to understand that there's a technical piece to this question, but that politics does take priority. What about the role of innovation as as a progressive? I had uh, um, uh, I had uh, my old friend Azim Azar on the show earlier. He's the author of a book called exponential how accelerating technology is leaving us behind and what to do about it he just had an ft piece talking about the need for governments to invest in innovation um would it have been better for example had the internet which in part was a government project if it remained a government project if indeed the government continues to own it and operate it well, look, innovation is one of those words that has come to mean almost anything, you know, and it's used very flexibly, let's say, by tech industry people. I mean, anything from the most trivial social app um, to, you know, the next microwave is called innovation. I think if we were to step back and say, okay, by innovation, we mean major technological breakthroughs. What we would have to admit is that most of the major technological breakthroughs on which the tech industry depends came out of public funding, specifically Pentagon research. The internet, as you indicate, Andrew, came out of billions of dollars and many years of, of patient funding and management by the Pentagon. The technology had to reach a certain level of development at which point it was profitable for the private sector to take it over. Was that so, any coincidence, Ben, that the internet, which, as you suggested, was architected and funded by the military industrial complex, which fought the Cold War? Was it any coincidence that it's eventually matured into an internet of Google and Facebook and uh, WhatsApp and Instagram? Well, the terms by which the internet was privatized starting in the 1990s, really set the foundation for those later empires of the internet, like Google and Facebook and others to emerge. Because the important thing to understand about the internet's privatization, as it began in the year 1995, which is the fateful year, is that the public sector asked nothing in return. There was no compensation. There were no conditions over how the internet would operate. There was no enduring public or non-commercial foothold that would be carved out of the network. The private sector took it over completely and established a total corporate dictatorship over its operations. And that's an important piece of history to understand how we got the thoroughly commercialized, thoroughly privatized internet and its associated problems of today. 
it's uh, your, your argument is is one that's often made that the one pushback I would give is that no one quite understood, and, and I'm sure you wouldn't disagree, no one understood what they were giving. The, the, the internet as a commercial enterprise in 1994, 1995 was, for most people, was unimaginable. Um, is there another model, though, uh, Ben, maybe the model of Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the World Wide Web in 89 and then gave it up? Is that the model that we should be trying to emulate? Well, look, I think it's important to point out that there were always alternative proposals for how the Internet could develop. And in the book, I try to point to those moments, those forks in the road, when it could have gone one way and it went the other way. In 1994, Senator Daniel Inouye of Hawaii actually introduced a Senate bill that would have forced telecom companies to reserve up to 20% of their capacity for public uses. This capacity would go to qualifying institutions like libraries, and nonprofits that serve the public. And these organizations would also be given a funding stream to develop their own programming and content. Major source of inspiration here is the legacy of public media. If you think about like the radio spectrum, we've always set aside a portion of the radio spectrum for non-commercial uses. And the idea was, well, what if we did the same with the internet? So that's one alternative possibility. Of course, as you might imagine, telecom opposition killed the idea a social movement of the kind that would be needed to overcome that opposition didn't materialize. But there are a lot of good proposals, both historically and in our contemporary era, for how to organize the internet differently. Which ones in particular are realistic, Ben, in 2022? I mean, we can't go back to 1994 and 1995. I mean, the internet is... Is, is another monster, another beast. It's an entirely different being in 2022 than it was in 1995. What is realistic, given uh, our politics, given the fact that um, you simply can't wind the clock back? Yeah, I agree with you, Andrew. And I think it's important to say that, you know, privatization was a process, not an event. And it was a creative process. As you say, it took a small academic research network and turned it into this powerhouse of global capitalism. So what I'm interested in, what I call deprivatization, must be no less creative. It really has to match that creativity. And the point is not to turn the clock back, but to really reimagine the internet. Fortunately, there are a number of existing models and experiments that can help us imagine a better internet. And we can talk about the different layers of the internet here. I'll give you a very concrete example at the so-called pipes of the internet. We have more than 900 community networks across the country, which are municipally owned or cooperatively owned broadband networks that provide much better service at lower rates to their communities than the broadband giants like Comcast and Verizon and so on. Further, they enable community members to actually participate in their operations, to actually have a voice in how infrastructure is going to be deployed in their community. So that's a very concrete example of entities that are building a more democratic internet at the level of the pipes. And we can use public policy tools to support those community networks, to expand them and to further democratize them. I take that point, although when it comes to muscle, the real muscle is with Google and Amazon and Apple and not with Verizon or, or, or Comcast. What about the idea, Ben, of 
recreating public space. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work that Talia Stroud does at the University of Texas at Austin. The idea of reinventing the internet so that it functions like a public park. I've done some conversations with Talia and her group in the past. What's missing in the internet is public space. Companies like Twitter and Facebook present themselves as the public space, but of course they're anything but public. They're extremely private and they profit from the, 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 these private networks. Right. You know, as you indicate, these are really best thought of as privately owned public spaces. You know, that's a term that that uh, right. urban planning people use to describe spaces where people congregate in public but are owned by corporations. You know, one of the points that I make in the book is that when we think about Google, Facebook and others, we shouldn't think of them as platforms. We should think of them as online shopping malls, that these are corporate enclosures in which people do congregate to socialize as well as to buy things, but which are under total control of these corporations. And we, what we need to do is to use public policy tools to break open these enclosures, to shrink their footprint, and to seed them with all manner of invasive species of true alternatives. And we could talk about a number of experiments in which those alternatives are beginning to develop. Which are you most encouraged with? There's, of course, a huge amount of regulation, a lot of it led from Europe, but the American, uh, the, the Biden administration seems quite interested and committed to some of these initiatives when it comes to antitrust, protecting privacy, challenging some of the more egregious business models of Silicon Valley. Which, which, what public policy, what forms of regulation do you consider the most encouraging in terms of remaking the internet as a place for the people rather than private enterprise? Well, I think there's a role for regulation. There's certainly a role for anti-monopoly. But at the end of the day, we need to build different ownership structures for the internet. The reality is that an internet that is owned by private firms and run on the principle of profit maximization will never be an internet for the people. It'll never be an internet in which people can actually participate in the decisions that most affect them. We need publicly and cooperatively owned alternatives because those alternatives can encode democratic practices into their operations. And in terms of experiments from which we could draw inspiration for what a very different and more democratic kind of internet might look like, one that I often point to is a project like Mastodon which is an open source project which enables people to run their own social media servers and then link them together in a federation. And one of the things that I like about Mastodon as a model is that it pushes decision-making about things like content moderation, about how filtering algorithms will work from the center of the network to the edges of the network. So rather than having say Mark Zuckerberg or potentially Elon Musk having essentially personal control over what these platforms are showing, you can have community structures where people can participate in democratic deliberative processes to determine how their social media community is going to run. And those communities don't have to be isolated. They don't have to be fragmented. They can federate much the same principle as email or even the internet itself. Are you putting yourself then, uh, Ben, in the Web3 community of decentralized autonomous organizations. Uh, we've done lots of shows on Web3 and crypto. Is there some ways that 
for you technology can indeed liberate and democratize? Or are you very wary of the language, the sort of the, the extreme libertarian anti-government language of Web3? Because after all, doing away with the center, uh, enabling networks that knock out the Zuckerbergs and the Travis Kalalniks of the world is exactly what the Web3 idealists are articulating too. Well, what I would say is that it's impossible to fully decentralize the internet and it's impossible to fully centralize the internet. It's always a question of what do you decentralize and what do you centralize? To my mind, that question has to be posed and answered at both a political and a technical level, which is to say, in certain cases, more decentralized structures make it possible to do certain things at the level of politics and technology. In the case of social media, what I like about a decentralized model is that it makes it possible to have in-person, face-to-face, democratic, deliberative structures that are making decisions about fairly difficult issues like how to do content moderation. I think those are decisions that are best determined in that type of setting. There are going to be other settings that lend themselves to a more centralized intervention. What I would say about Web3 in general is that I'm not particularly optimistic that those projects would lead to a democratic internet. My suspicion is that these projects would produce new concentrations of power, new points of centralization, new gatekeepers, and enrich a kind of new class of elite rather than distributing power more broadly. Ben, your work, one way or the other, calls for the agency of the people. People need to act politically, whether it's Internet of the People or your articles about the conditions for revolution. Uh, You wrote a piece uh, in 2020 about tech workers at every level needing to organize to build power. Uh, You did the same about Silicon Valley workers having had enough. You assume that the people are political, that they want agency. But what happens if the reverse is true? We did a a show earlier this week with Chris Stokel Walker, the author of an interesting book on TikTok. He argues, I think quite rightly, that TikTok now is the dominant social network. And what distinguishes it from Facebook, whereas Facebook was focused on network, TikTok is just a giant entertainment platform. And that's why people go to TikTok. They want to be entertained. Remember, back in 1984, Neil Postman wrote his famous book, Entertaining Ourselves to Death. What about the argument it's not a particularly encouraging one, it's rather pessimistic, that most people aren't political, that they simply go on the internet to be entertained. They'll enjoy their 15-second videos on TikTok, and they don't want to be bothered in any other way. How, How would you respond to that? Well, I would agree that most people are not in so-called normal times political. I mean, I think real politics happens quite rarely. You know, uh, during normal times, the level of social mobilization is is rather low. But there are moments throughout history, and we briefly had one in the summer of 2020, in which masses of people do get politicized very quickly, where social mobilization does reach a fever pitch. And in such moments, a lot of changes become possible that were completely unthinkable, you know, just days or weeks or years ago. So our task is to try to prepare the ground for those upsurges, to try to make sure there are good ideas lying around 
for the people to pick up when they do get politicized and do get mobilized. But I agree that it is often a difficult task. I think also people just, they, they behave within a set of constraints and incentives. And if you think about how people's lives are organized now, if you're exhausted coming home from work, you want to be entertained. You know, I wouldn't moralize or judge folks who simply need a little bit of relief before they have to get up early in the morning and do a tedious or exhausting job to put food on the table. That's just, you know, how people are forced to live under capitalism. But I think there are moments in which a wider range of action becomes possible. And those are the moments in which real politics can happen. Let's end with those moments. You noted that in 2020 with COVID and then Black Lives Matter, these are the conditions in which you believe revolution becomes thinkable. Do you think the next moment might be the re-election of Donald Trump in 2024? Is that another conceivable moment? Certainly conceivable. I, I am reluctant to ever make predictions of any kind. <laughs> so I wouldn't... I wouldn't well, you can do it on my show, Ben. I let you. You're allowed to. <laughs> I, I mean, you're a tech that, writer. That's what tech writers do. It's true. It's true. Well, there is the temptation. Kind of tech writer for most of them. No, the temptation of prophecy is always there for sure. I think. I think all we can say by looking at history is, frankly, it's very unpredictable. It's very hard to anticipate what these moments will be. I mean, I think the summer of 2020 again comes to mind as one in which, you know, obviously. The circumstances seem ripe for it objectively. The kindling, let's say, is very dry, but you never know where the spark will come from, you know, and uh, that that's certainly true if you look at the history of, of revolutions more broadly. So we can expect that there will be more moments of social upheaval, particularly as climate change intensifies, uh, but we can't know precisely where those will come from. Well, we haven't even mentioned climate change. We'll avoid that one for the moment, Ben. Uh, your new book, Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future, is very thoughtful as you are. I think you've laid out some of the alternatives in an extremely articulate way. Congratulations on the book. I wish Thank great you so success. Much. It's a Verso book, and they do always do a good job with these sorts of manifestos. Uh, any, any other reading suggestions, Ben, in addition to your new book? What are you reading these days? Well, you know, I, I'm so sick of the internet. I stopped reading about the internet. <laughs> so I've been, uh, <laughs> I, I can't avoid it, unfortunately, but I'm trying not to think about it as much as possible. You know, I read uh, I read Hari Kunzru's Red Pill, you know, a bit of uh, fiction, which is a little bit mm -hmm. rare for me, which I thought was fascinating. I'm, you know, now firmly in middle age and it's about a midlife crisis. So that was uh, that was educational for me. And then um, uh, David Rodiger's Wages of Whiteness is another book I read recently, just a fascinating analysis of, of the emergence of whiteness as an identity uh, in working class America over the course of the 19th century. Excellent.